is on the ground coming to you from Washington DC where everything out of order including converging health economic and political crises have become the order of the day the United States Congress is the ultimate judge and jury the final arbiter of all election contests involving federal officials whether it be congressmen senators or president of the United States and how does the legacy of colonialism resonate in the present for our final F-Word segment on fascism for 2020, we speak to Professor Gerald Horn about the 135th anniversary of the Berlin Conference and Europe's scramble for Africa's natural resources and labor. Oftentimes, the ultra-right wing energy is coming from the grassroots. You, you see this with regard to those protests in Washington that we are talking about now. And there, there's a long history of this. All that and more, coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. As this show goes to broadcast on Friday morning, December 18th, Congress is racing to approve a small economic stimulus package that in the current draft will include a second direct payment to adults of just $600, half of the $1,200 distributed in the spring. Also, the extra $600 a week that would have been paid in supplemental unemployment benefits is cut to $300 and slated to last for 12 weeks instead of 16 weeks. David Dayan, executive editor of the American Prospect, who we spoke to recently on the show, points out in his column this week that this compromise pits targeted relief for the unemployed against broader relief for the working class. Dayan adds that Republicans led by Senate leader Mitch McConnell were opposed to even this amount of aid, but in a private caucus call with GOP senators, McConnell admitted that he changed his mind because Republican Senate candidates in Georgia millionaires David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler are quote-unquote getting hammered in their special election bids because of Republican opposition to more direct payments. More than 310,000 Americans have died from coronavirus and the number of cases is rising. Also, for the week ending December 12th, more than 1.4 million Americans made new claims for unemployment benefits. Now, instead of this week's Electoral College vote being a pro forma exercise in a normal American election, the 2020 Electoral College vote was an exercise in an abnormal American election. Keen observers are referring to what is happening in D.C. as a rolling coup attempt by a cohort including Donald Trump, Republicans, and various right-wing extremist organizations who refuse to accept a Biden victory. Many of these forces converged on Washington, D.C. on the week of December 11th, 12th, and 13th in advance of the December 14th Electoral College vote. On Saturday morning, the area around Freedom Plaza in Northwest D.C. 
was the gathering place for several pro-Trump groups, including a Trump parade and a group called the Jericho Movement, which, like in the Bible, spoke of marching seven times around the Supreme Court to make the walls of the court come down. Ali Alexander, described as a founder of the Stop the Steal movement, exhorted the crowd with a mixture of politics, religion, conspiracy theories, and boosterism for emerging far-right news organizations such as OAN, NTD, the anti-China Epoch Times, and Newsmax, which reportedly for one hour of the rally beat Fox News in ratings. So I guess I don't have a speech as much as I have a warning to the establishment. We will shut this country down. We believe in some good trouble, right? Maybe some make America great again trouble, right? While the actions during the day were about verbal vitriol and threats, by evening, gangs of violent thugs, including some identified as members of the Proud Boys, roamed throughout downtown Washington, D.C., physically attacking several people. Four people were stabbed. Four black churches were vandalized. Asbury United Methodist Church, Metropolitan African Methodist Episcopal Church, Mount Vernon Place United Methodist Church, and Luther Place Memorial Church. Black Lives Matter signs were torn down from the churches and burned on the ground, surrounded by what looked like lynch mobs. While D.C.'s Metropolitan Police Department did not contain the various roving gangs that appeared out of alleys and mob-attacked individuals and couples, a thick police presence with barricades and bicycles kept white supremacist groups from converging on Black Lives Matter Plaza near the White House, or destroying the art and memorials there, as they did last month. Protection of the plaza was so strict that many Black Lives Matter supporters who tried to enter the plaza to participate in a scheduled community celebration could not enter. This is On the Ground reporter Lydia Curtis. I felt betrayed by the police because you would think if they're out to protect the public, and I'm clearly you know, in a danger zone, that they would want to do something about that. But they obviously weren't interested in preventing anything. It was just Confederate flags, Trump flags, people in paramilitary gear that were not police. And then one of the white supremacist protesters had a bullhorn and he started talking about people being traitors and trying to shout over the police line to the Black Lives Matter protesters and how it was a treasonous act and that we should be hung. And when my husband heard the word hung, hanging or hung, that triggered him. So he started cursing because that just flashed him back to the lynching day. The atmosphere was very tense because there was nasty rhetoric coming off of the bullhorn from the Nazi group. And just the sight of the Confederate flags and the, the paramilitary gear, it, it just made a very nasty atmosphere. And see, I went down there because I wanted to come and, you know, just affirm my beliefs, my culture. It was supposed to be a festival, and it turned out that we could not do that. We were prevented from doing that because the whole time we had to defend our space all day long. Instead of music and dancing and affirmations, it was a standoff, a hostile standoff the whole time because they decided they were going to come up to where they were not permitted to come. They did not have a permit for that. They did not stay in Freedom Plaza, which was about eight blocks away. They walked over, about 100 of them to try to start trouble over there. 
Police said 39 people were arrested in connection with actions during the protests last weekend. Charges were dropped against Philip Johnson of D.C., who was arrested after he was seen on a viral video defending himself with a knife after being attacked by a gang. D.C. Councilmember Charles Allen, chair of the Council Committee on the Judiciary and Public Safety, questioned in a council meeting this week the disparate treatment of protesters by MPD, which he said allowed gangs of violent white supremacists to roam the streets of the district, but on the other hand, kettles and frequently pepper sprays Black Lives Matter protesters at point-blank range. People are asking, including myself, why did police officers kettle peaceful protesters on Swan Street, liberally deploying chemical irritants, but we witnessed militia-like bands of white men damaging historically black churches and acts meant to incite racial terror? There doesn't seem to be a similar intervention by those nearby officers. I know many residents have reached out to me. Several of you, my colleagues, have reached out to me as well, who are alarmed at the disparity of when and on whom MPD shows restraint and when officers are quick to use force and chemical irritants. On Monday, the actual day of the Electoral College vote, the Michigan State Capitol was shuttered after credible threats of violence. There were similar threats in Wisconsin. Not only was there this threat and violence, the right wing also carried out a strategy of selecting their own slate of electors in Pennsylvania, Georgia, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Nevada. In Arizona, fake electors sent notarized documents with their votes for Trump to the National Archives, as opposed to the actual vote from Arizona, which was for Joe Biden. Now, in this rolling attempted coup, or maybe it's just Trump's prolonged fundraising campaign, the field is constantly being extended. Now the Trumpists are looking at January 6th, when Congress assembles to count the Electoral College votes. Some Republican lawmakers led by Representative Mo Brooks of Alabama have said they plan to object to the electoral votes cast for Biden. And if they do object, they would still need both the House and Senate to agree with them. And so it is a long shot that they will be successful. This week, Senate leader Mitch McConnell advised them not to attempt this strategy. Now, as D.C. contends with the aftermath of recent attacks and vandalism by these right-wing extremists, the D.C. Council is considering proposed laws about hate crimes and police reform. Activists are discussing why communities need more say about policing in their neighborhoods. Chantal James has more. While defund the police has become a nationally known slogan for the Black Lives Matter movement, the call for community control of the police was discussed by D.C. area activists this week in a panel sponsored by the Claudia Jones School for Political Education in conjunction with Pan-African Community Action, also known as PACA. In this inaugural event for the National Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression, speakers grounded the movement in its radical origins and explained the historical roots of modern policing as we know it in slavery. Max Rameau, core organizer with PACA, grounded PACA's support of community control of police as a response to the injustice of the operations of special police in the District of Columbia, such as those that murdered Alonzo Smith in Southeast D.C. in 2015. 
on the on Halloween night, 2015, a 27-year-old teacher, beloved teacher in the D.C. area, went to go visit a friend at the Marbury Plaza, which is in southeast Washington, D.C., uh, but never made it out from that visit. During that visit, men with uniforms and badges followed him, said they thought he was acting suspiciously, uh, trapped him, uh, hog-tied him, and basically suffocated him to death. That was Alonzo Smith. What we soon came to find out, however, was that those men, they were what's called special police, which is a designation of law enforcement, is a licensed law enforcement person who does not work for the state. So what we realized was that these apartment buildings, Union Station, some small neighborhoods, rural neighborhoods in Virginia, they have their own police. They're in control of their police. And what we realized very quickly is that we need to be in control of those who are going around our neighborhood. So how does some small town in Virginia with 30, 40 people in it get its own police and they get to tell that police what to do? And the black community has no one protecting us, has no one who is following our orders and no one who's doing the things that we say need to be done. Ramo shared that 30 states allow for special police forces and that in just the state of Virginia alone, there are more than 40 police departments operating out of people's private homes. For On the Ground, this is Chantal James. And finally in culture and media, on December 16th, the media advocacy organization Free Press joined Common Cause, the Communication Workers of America, the United Church of Christ and other groups in seeking to uphold protections to promote diversity in local broadcasting and news gathering. Free Press filed a brief with the Supreme Court as justices prepared to hear the Trump FCC's argument for reinstating its repeal of vital broadcast ownership limits. The broadcast industry joined the FCC to seek this high court review, aiming to overturn safeguards that limit corporate broadcasters' ability to consolidate control over multiple stations and newspapers in individual local markets throughout the United States. Also, in a big blow to the future of movie theaters, Warner Brothers announced this month that it's releasing all of its 2021 movies, on HBO Max, the same day as theaters. This slate includes movies like Dune, The Suicide Squad, Matrix 4, Space Jam, A New Legacy, Godzilla vs. Kong, and Mortal Kombat. In history this week, on December 19, 1875, the future father of black history, Carter G. Woodson, was born in New Canton, Virginia. He introduced black studies to American colleges and universities, his works included The Negro in, in Our History and The Education of the Negro Prior to 1861. And December 20th, 1956 marked the end of the Montgomery bus boycott after the U.S. Supreme Court ruling integrating the Montgomery bus system was implemented. The year-long boycott by African Americans began the prior year on December 5th after Rosa Parks was arrested for refusing to give up her seat on a Montgomery bus to a white man. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us.
how we're feeling today? Good. Are we ready to fight? Yes. Are we ready to resist? Yes. Are we ready to conquer? Yes. Victory. We want justice, right? So, uh, well, good, good, good evening, everyone. My name is Eduardo Salaya. I'm the lead organizer from Casa in Virginia. And we are here to share, as you can see, with many of my uh, teammates from Virginia, how we felt and what was the experience and the reason why we went to all the way to Delaware from different states, for example, Virginia, Pennsylvania, and Maryland. We all mobilized today, and so today, I'm going to let my compañera and my leader, community leader, Sandra, to share with you what was the reason why we went to Delaware and how we felt and how we feel at the moment after the event. So, Sandra, please give it up for Sandra. And I'm going to translate. Gracias por estar aquí cada uno de ustedes. Thank you for being here, everyone. Estoy muy contenta de ser parte de casa para ayudarnos a todos nosotros los latinos, todas las personas, no importa el lugar de donde nosotros seamos, el país que seamos, que estamos luchando por una causa inmensa, inmensamente grande. Uh, like I said, my name is Sandra, and I'm really, really happy and excited to share with you how happy I feel of being for being part of this organization, CASA, and work for something that is really important, which is unite everyone in the United States after so many years that love and passion and solidarity morals was like hurt because of this administration. Estoy muy feliz porque, gracias a Dios, ¿verdad?, ganó nuestro presidente John Biden. Estoy contenta porque sé que él va a escuchar lo que nosotros estamos haciendo. Eh, Dios, primeramente, va a tocar el corazón de él porque lo que estamos haciendo, este esfuerzo, no es en vano. I am really happy because uh, with all the efforts that everyone and each of us put on the elections, we were able to elect the president-elect uh, Joe Biden, and so that's why that's why we went to Delaware because we wanted to let him know that after the win, we are ready to work together and ready to build what was broken for the past administration. Well, yo soy del Salvador. Soy una tepeciana y estoy agradecida con Dios por tener mi TPS y creo que cada uno tenemos sueños de tener un documento en este país y lo merecemos tener porque somos personas muy trabajadoras en este país, nos merecemos que, que, que nos den ese documento para estar legalmente en este país, todos lo merecemos porque somos personas muy trabajadoras. And I'm Salvadorian and I'm a TPS holder. I am proud to say it because it's something that we gain after everything we suffer back in our country to have a stable life in here in the United States. And because of that, I'm really, really happy to know that we elect a president that we will be working together in order for us to obtain something really critical, which will be a uh, immigration status that won't be denied or broken for a uh, president that is racist and is anti-immigrant.
muchas gracias por su atención, que Dios les bendiga y pasen muy buenas noches. Thank you so much for your attention and your efforts of being here in the call with us. I am so happy and grateful to God for giving me this opportunity to fight with you all. And I hope that we get more, we gain more strength and power to build what we lost, power and dignity in this society. Thank you so much and we see you soon. Muchas gracias. Spaces in Action DC, and this is not the first time that we've stood in solidarity with CASA. We fought with CASA throughout this systemic pandemic because we understand that we are more powerful together than we are apart. We are more powerful together than we are apart. And it was my pleasure and honor to stand with you in Wilmington, Delaware, to see you list those demands that we ask of our president-elect Biden within his, hundred, within his first 100 days of office. And as I was walking to Black Lives Matter Plaza, as I've done so many times before, I pondered and thought about how, how is this experience uplifting me? How am I having a unified feeling through the cultural awareness within our black and brown communities. And I want to dedicate this poem and share it with all of you and tell you the spaces in action will always fight with you, will always champion your causes, and will always stand in solidarity with you. So this poem is very short and sweet, and it's called Still Arise by Maya Angelou. And it is something that I implore, I convict, and I compel you to do as a community. Keep rising, keep fighting, and keep stepping into your power. You may write me down in history with your bitter, twisted lies. You may trod me in the very dirt, but still, like air, I rise. Does my haughtiness upset you? Why are you beset with gloom? Cause I walk like I got oil wells pumping in my living room, just like moons and like suns with the certainty of tides. Just like oats springing high, still like air, I rise. I rise, I rise, I rise. Thank you.
TPS. TPS renewal and extensions and above all permanent protections. to renew. And so God, we call upon you as communities that have experienced deep pain over the last four years, we call upon you to halt that pain, to start the healing, to bring forward renewal, to call out our love, to offer protections, citizenship, and hope for all. Because next year and win a pathway to citizenship for all, criminal justice reform, Puerto Rico, relief and recovery for undocumented people and justice for all. Woo! All right, what do we want? Justice. What do we want? It? Now. What do we want? Justice. What do we want? You have been listening to voices from the vigil at Black Lives Matter Plaza for Justice, held Tuesday, December 15th, 2020. Hosted by Congregation Action Network, Casa in Action, and NACASEC to urge the incoming Biden administration to address the human rights of immigrants in the United States. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And I don't want to end 2020 without marking the 135th anniversary of the end of the Berlin Conference, sometimes called the Congo Conference, held between 1884 and 1885. At the conference, European military powers sat down among themselves and decided how they would divide, colonize, and exploit African people and resources. All but Ethiopia and Liberia, a sort of U.S. colony, remain uncolonized. I thought this would be an important history to mark for our final segment of the F-word on fascism for 2020 because this year has been this national and some say international uprising against and reckoning with racism. And because this year the F-word has featured thinkers on colonialism and post-colonialism, people like Amali Eshetela and Vijay Prashad and of course, our geopolitical analyst, Professor Joe Horn, who have reminded us that the Nazi level actions of murder and genocide, which we usually only associate with Germany and World War II, actually happened much earlier in Africa, Asia, and Central and South America, and countries invaded and colonized by the United States, Europe, and Japan. So joining me again for this final effort of 2020 is on the grounds geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn the Morris Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. The most recent of his three dozen books is The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. He joins us from Houston, Texas. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you. 
Well, we could start in a lot of different directions, but I'm a journalist, and so I want to start with a lead. So why do you think that it matters 135 years later to remember the Berlin Conference? You know, many of us know that Africa was militarily conquered and divided in ways that did not respect existing boundaries of nations, of people, and historic friendships and rivalries. So what do you think are the most significant legacies of the conference that we can still see today? Well, in some ways, the Berlin Conference, surprisingly enough, was about Germany. What I mean is that it takes place at a moment when Germany was consolidating as a nation, as opposed to being separate principalities. And as Germany was consolidating as a nation, it was looking for its own place in the sun, not least because it was already beginning to rival London, rivaled the British Empire in terms of economic might. And so part of what happened at the Berlin Conference of 1884-1885 was that Germany carved out for itself a colony in Africa that they called German Southwest Africa, today known as Namibia, awash today with uranium and diamonds and all manner of natural resources. But with regard to your lead-in to our discussion, it is accurate to suggest that many of the events that beset Central and Eastern Europe in the 1930s and the 1940s were anticipated in Namibia, German Southwest Africa, circa 1905 to about 1908, when a genocide, a horrible genocide, was inflicted upon the Nama and Herero people of Namibia, and indeed, they are still seeking reparations from Berlin, which is ironic because, as you probably know, Berlin has supplied reparations to Israel for what befell the Jewish population of Central and Eastern Europe in the 1930s and 1940s, even though, of course, Israel did not exist until after these events had expired. What's striking about this genocide in Namibia, German Southwest Africa, is the fact that many of the engineers of these horrors, in a sense, they practiced upon the Africans before taking their bloody skills into Central and Eastern Europe. I mean, it was some of the same individuals and some of the same people. I should also mention that Germany carved out for itself the colony that was then known as Tanganyika, now, of course, combined with Zanzibar, is part of the independent African nation of Tanzania. And similar bloodiness was inflicted upon that part of Southeast Africa, just like a murderous regime was inflicted upon what was then called German Southwest Africa. And what's more striking, perhaps, is that it was about 105 years ago that the great scholar W.E.B. Du Bois, as World War I was being ignited, which was another chapter in this ongoing contestation between London and Berlin, that is to say part of the reason for this war was that Berlin once again felt that its economic might was not matched by its slice of the colonial pie. And in the 
still worthy essay that Du Bois wrote, The African Roots of War, he suggested that the reason for World War I was precisely what I just articulated. That is to say, the state that Africa was in, being ripe for exploitation and plunder, was attracting the horrible intent and the horrible practices of these European powers who were battling each other in order to control Africa. Even with independence, with 1960 being the year of Africa, which is another uh, year that should be marked, uh, that is to say the 60th anniversary of a rush to independence and sovereignty by many African nations, the fact is that even today, in 2020, uh, Africa is attracting outsized attention from some of the same old powers, uh, particularly France. But I would also say that the new kid on the block, so to speak, is the United States of America, uh, which in the period in which we're discussing from, say, the 1880s up until about the end of World War I, circa 1918, in many ways it was not in the driver's seat with regard to colonizing Africa, although our presence and the presence of our ancestors in the United States suggests that it had long maintained a dedicated interest in affairs African. And indeed, if you look at the role of the United States during this period, for example, when Britain moved into East Africa, particularly the colony that they call Kenya in the 1890s, what happens is that Britain heavily relies upon U.S. nationals, Euro-Americans, to be in the cockpit, so to speak. Because, let's face it, Britain today has a population of about 67 million. The jewel in the crown of the empire was British India, India having a population of about 1.3 billion today, uh, Pakistan and the tens of millions, perhaps 200 million, Bangladesh, perhaps 100 million, not to mention Sri Lanka, Myanmar, and uh, other colonies in the Caribbean, too numerous to mention. And so what happens is that Britain comes to rely upon many Euro-Americans. And in fact, if you look at Kenya, as I did in my book on Kenya that was published some years ago, you'll find that some of the richest colonists and settlers in Kenya from the beginning were Euro-Americans. And so what's happening today, to come back to 2020, is that with the challenge to U.S. imperialism presented by China, once again, you have this growing hunger for the resources of Africa. So this year, you know, we saw statues of King Leopold being toppled. It gave us an opportunity to tell the story of the millions of Congolese people murdered during his reign in that territory, where also men, women, and children were maimed by having their hands and limbs cut off. And we know about the genocidal rule of apartheid South Africa, the butchery of that you just mentioned of the Germans in what is now Namibia. But is there any estimate or accounting of the overall wealth and resources extracted from Africa in the so-called you know, era of new imperialism, like after 1881? Well, I'm happy that you mentioned Belgium, because if you're talking about the horrors of European colonialism in Africa, you cannot escape a discussion of what used to be called the Belgian Congo, with the Congo itself in the territorial sense, 
being as sizable as Western Europe, as sizable as the United States east of the Mississippi River, and during the misrule of the Congo under the aegis of King Leopold, which ruled the sprawling land as if it were his own personal fiefdom, you had millions, countless millions, uh, who were killed. And as you suggested, there was a forced labor regime. And if Africans did not readily comply with this forced labor regime, they could wind up with one hand or one arm or one leg uh, as a result of these appendages being uh, hacked off. We also know that even today, Congo is uh, suffering from the depredations of those who are still lusting after the vast mineral wealth of this nation. I'm sure your listeners are familiar with coltan, this rare resource that goes into most of the mobile phones that have become a sidekick of so many in the United States of America. But that's only one of the many resources that are plundered on a regular basis from the Congo. And once again, this plunder, this pillaging, and the fact that it oftentimes involves conflict between and amongst uh, European powers or the North Atlantic powers or corporations from Europe, corporations of the United States, who then ally with one faction in Congo or another, that's a prescription for conflict internally within the Congo which I'm afraid to say is bubbling to the surface uh, as we speak. You may have seen the headlines recently about the coalition government in the Democratic Republic of the Congo uh, breaking down and a fear that unrest will soon ensue. I was also happy to see that in Belgium itself, once again, I would say it's a direct result of the George Floyd protests following May 25th, 2020 in Minneapolis, that those protests reached Brussels and there were apologies finally made uh, to the Congolese. There were statues that were taken down. Those are good first steps. But obviously, at the end of the day, uh, what we really need to talk about, not only with regard to Namibia, as noted, but even more so, I would say, with regard to the Congo, is a regime of reparations to compensate somehow the people of the Congo for the horrors that were inflicted upon them. And I might also issue this footnote that the United States, with regard to the Congo, has also been complicit. Recall that after Congo surges to independence approximately 60 years ago under the leadership of Patrice Lumumba, it has been documented that the U.S. intelligence agencies were involved in his assassination. Uh, there's a memoir by the CIA station chief at that time, Larry Devlin, that goes into that in some detail, and then that leads to the rise of the kleptocrat, uh, once known as Joseph Mobutu, who rules Congo for decades, is a fierce anti-communist, which wins some plaudits in the White House and in the State Department until approximately 20-odd years ago when he is driven out of power 
and driven into exile. But alas, the suffering of the Congolese did not cease with the ousting of the man once known as Joseph Mobutu. You know, you were talking about the the role of the United States and how particularly the UK was reliant on the United States. And I assume like the, the whole United States project to prop up, to help prop up itself in Africa and in other areas it was colonizing. And I want to play two clips during our conversation and kind of get you to react and how this legacy of colonialism and the transatlantic project of whiteness that we've talked about before is related to our discussion today. So this first clip I'm going to play for you is of a Black Lives Matter protester. November 11th, November 12th, we had several pro-Trump activities in the city, several different groups talking about how Donald Trump actually won the 2020 presidential election right-wing extremist groups, uh, violent groups like the Proud Boys roaming the city, the downtown areas of the city, inflicting violence on people. And so one of our local journalists, uh, Chuck Modi, interviewed this young lady with the Black Lives Matter movement about what was happening. And I'm going to play that. The same white people that were poor in 1776, when they said, we the people, but if you aren't white, rich, and own property, you can't vote. Those same white people are the ones that are out here fighting against a democracy, fighting for a president that didn't actually fight for any of their rights, fighting for a president that, that also f***ed up their checks and their taxes, fighting for a president that didn't give them health care, fighting for a president that didn't give a f- about their education. They're out here literally fighting against their own interests. That is what they're fighting for. And at this point, I think the only thing they're fighting for is white supremacy. It's to uphold white supremacy. Because they don't have Does that we don't have They don't have Only they have is their white skin. It's not enough. Because at the end of the day, when it all comes down to it, and all the rich people leave to go to Mars when our planet is burning, they're going to leave you too. Because they don't give a f*** about you either. The Republican Party and the Democratic Party have been using white people, poor white people especially, as fodder to keep to make sure that their election chances can, can stay up. And we're just, we're tired of that. We want them to know that we are fighting for their children's right to exist. We are fighting for their children's right to be educated. We're fighting for their children's right to have health care as well. Like, when we all get these rights, it's not just going to be just black people. It's going to be every marginalized group and white people as well that are going to get benefit from black liberation. So they can be out here fighting against our interests all they want. We're going to win because we're on the right side of history, not them. So again, that was one of the young protesters in downtown D.C. on the weekend of November 11th, November 12th, when there was a convergence of violent uh, pro-Trump groups uh, roaming the streets and attacking people, vandalizing four historic black churches, tearing down Black Lives Matter signs and burning them. So, Gerald, I wanted to, I wanted you to react to that piece and connected to what we're talking about in terms of how the United States has supported European countries in their efforts to colonize Africa and other parts of the world, uh, even if we weren't directly involved in the as a colonizer ourselves. And that piece also reminds me to mention that it is the colonization of people in Africa, Asia, Latin America, South America, that provided the material boost 
for even the white working class in the United States and in Europe to even have that standard of living. And when these countries seek their independence to use their resources for themselves, which has happened, it contributes to the capitalist crisis in the United States and in Europe because they can no longer cushion their own economies with the resources and the labor, the slave labor, and the exploitation of people outside their boundaries. And so that's one of the things that's happened in the late 20th century and 21st century. Well, one of the things that struck me about the young person's statement is how insightful it was, particularly with regard to the founding of, of this country and how it ties into what's happening in the streets of Washington today. In so many ways, she's much more insightful, I'm afraid to say, than many of our scholars and intellectuals who tend to look at the founding of the United States through rose-colored glasses, including turning the U.S. Constitution into some sort of magic talisman. That is to say, all you have to do is invoke the Constitution and somehow everything will right itself. Now, my militant, politicized self says right on with regard to all these statements. That is to say, in particular, that these proud boys and the Oath Keepers and the Three Percenters, that they're on a fool's errand, that they will not win in the end, at best, they'll stand trial and be incarcerated indefinitely for their crimes against humanity. On the other hand, since the F word is on the table, if fascism does come to the United States, one of the things that could happen, I'm afraid to say, is that many of us will be expropriated. We're the ones who wind up being incarcerated at best. And they will walk away with booty now unimaginable. Now, that's basically what's at stake. And I'm betting upon my militant politicized self. And the same holds true for the commenter. I had another clip that I want to play because some of this colonizing was done under the pretext, if you want to call it, of kind of like the the missionary thing, like civilizing Africa, you know, the Christian Mm -hmm. angle. And I went back and listened to some of the early Trump rally, right? And so there was something called the Jericho movement out there, as well as the Trump parade and all these other groups out there. I was really struck at the mixture of religion, nationalism, all the elements that, you know, are on that little list of like, you know, what makes up fascism, (laughs) you know? So I want to play it for you and, um, and then you can react to it and we'll, 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 we'll wind up then. This is Ali Alexander, the leader of the stop the steel movement. This is a brown skinned man. I'm not sure of his lineage or whatever, but he is speaking to the crowd and kind of gives the flavor of where that movement is which is, I guess is Trumpism and uh, how that this might relate to uh, America's uh, attitudes and role in kind of like geopolitics uh, in the past and now. Yo, I think that we are making history. I think that today, today, 
is when moral Americans are deciding whether our government is legitimate or illegitimate. I think that this is a signal to the deep state that we're not going to tolerate a Joe Biden presidency, are we? I really don't think they get it. They keep thinking if the media says it, if the Democrats say it, if Republicans say it, he's still not the president, is he? So I guess I don't have a speech as much as I have a warning to the establishment. We will shut this country down. The last thing I'll say, and I'll probably be back up on stage later, is that we have God's favor. One day I'm going to tell you guys all the stories, but this, the sun coming out like this, this is God. He has gone ahead of us. I have been to 10 different states and it's not rained once. To God be the glory. Uh, I felt like I was being punished. (laughs) Well, you know, I made myself listen to this. That was audio from one of the pro-Trump rallies on November 12th here in D.C., Uh, in advance of that night's violence by groups like the Proud Boys. I kind of thought of it as the ideological underpinnings of the violence that came later that night. You know, that these were the people who were, who were the, if you want to call it the minds of that movement. And the other people were like the fists and the thugs of, of that extreme right movement. So I thought of a few things out of that. I thought about how reference to our conversation that the United States and other European colonizers have gone around the world deposing uh, leaders, you know, like Gaddafi, you know, killed on YouTube and like Patrice Lumumba killed in the Congo, right? And how they had delegitimized elected or, you know, popular rulers all around the world in Africa that we're talking about, or, or even here in like Allende in, in Chile. And, and now it's, it's coming home in terms of more than a majority of the Republicans poll believe that Biden wasn't legitimately elected. And the, the other thing I thought about is how so much of the Republican party here, um, or the Trump supporters no longer trust media, you know, after I feel being lied to for four years about Russiagate and, and other things around Trump, they're, they're even abandoning Fox. Fox isn't even right wing enough for them. And they're going to these new outlets like Newsmax. And so I thought about hybrid wars of information and disinformation and assassination and all kinds of methods being used that have been used not only in Africa that we're talking about, but by, you know, all over the world by uh, former colonizers. That's obviously valid. Obviously, we're having a case of chickens coming home to roost. Uh, That is to say, the United States has oftentimes dealt with political questions through the barrel of a gun. And these veterans uh, who, who oftentimes fought in places like Afghanistan and Iraq have now come back, at least many of them, and are populating groups like the Three Percenters, the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys. And once again, they have not dismissed the idea of solving political problems through the barrel of a gun, or if I read those stories from Washington, uh, right through the 
point of a knife in terms of these knifings that I understand took place in Washington a few days ago. But it also reveals something else that I'm afraid to say our friends on the left have difficulty in comprehending or dealing with, which is that oftentimes the ultra-right-wing energy is coming from the grassroots. Do you, you see this with regard to those protests in Washington that we are talking about now? And there, there's a long history of this. If you go back to the founding of the United States, if you go back to 1676 and Bacon's Rebellion, when in neighboring Virginia, you had, under the leadership of an affluent Nathaniel Bacon, you had men, mostly not of means, seeking to overthrow the British colonial government because they didn't think Britain was moving rapidly enough to dispossess the Native Americans. And so we have a replay of that sort of scenario now in 2020 with not only the protests against Fox News, which is seen as insufficiently to the right and insufficiently, pardon the expression, uh, manly enough, unquote, to confront aggressively the Biden forces. But you also see it with regard to not only One American News, but Newsmax, and, uh, the Epic Times and NTD. And so the only bright spot that I can see is that it could lead to a fragmentation of the right, just like Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, is being attacked viciously from the White House by Rush Limbaugh, etc. Maybe the Republican Party will split, which will be fantastic news. It'll hopefully weaken the strength of the right. That's the best case scenario. And we have one more date to keep our eye on, which is January 6, 2021, when we expect there to be a pro forma exercise in terms of tallying the votes of the Electoral College but which the ultra-right feels is the last opportunity to have Mr. Trump be sworn in and inaugurated two weeks later in January 2021. Well, that is uh, it for our segment, the final segment of the F-Word on Fascism for 2020. I've been speaking with On the Ground's geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, and thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you. Well, that will do it for today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. The music we play this hour included Cloud Blue by Isaiah Roussan, Black Man Know Yourself by Femi Kuti, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. Your fully tax-deductible donation of as little as $3 a month will help us keep lifting up voices of activism and resistance to corporate power and corporate media. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show that's patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash on the ground show where we post the shows and bonus material or you can see all the ways to support including end of the year giving and paypal on our website which you know is on the ground show dot org thank you <laughs>